Merry Christmas to each of you. It is wonderful to be gathered together as God's people, as a church family. Take your Bibles. We'll go to Matthew chapter 1. We'll conclude what we started last week in working through that first chapter. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25 this morning. Do you know the definition of the word oxymoron? Do you know what that word means? It's kind of a funny sounding word, isn't it? Reminds us of maybe a pejorative word we call somebody that we think is not too bright. But it's defined as a combination of words that have opposite or very different meanings. The Bible presents to us some very difficult truths that may often seem like oxymorons. In our passage this morning, we'll be called to wrestle with some of the most challenging in all of Scripture. A virgin mother. Does that make sense? A virgin mother. And the God-man himself. J.I. Packer writes in his excellent work, Knowing God, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable, unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God himself became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Unable to do anything more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other human child. And there was no illusion here or deception in this event. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. God himself in diapers. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. That's what these verses will teach us this morning. So what does God want us to learn in this text? Our gracious God provides salvation through the supernatural conception of his own son. Let's look at our text this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 18. This is the word of God to us, his people. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, highlighting that he is Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together as husband and wife, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, notice it already calls her her husband, calls Joseph her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which he, the person who is conceived in her, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he, Joseph, called his name Jesus. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we look at this text together. Father, give us grace to see the truths that you are presenting to us here in this passage. You have written this for our instruction, for our benefit, for our comfort to grow our faith, our confidence in who you are as our great God. So may we see you and know you and worship you and obey you because of what we see in this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now again, Matthew's account of Jesus' birth differs from Luke in several ways. But most fundamentally, Luke is focused on Mary's story, and Matthew is focused on Joseph's. But consider, Matthew does not mention the lives of Joseph and Mary in the town of Nazareth. He doesn't mention the appearance of the angel to Mary, Mary's visit to Elizabeth, the census, the trip to Bethlehem, the lack of room in the inn, or the manger. They're all left out. He's very selective in order to accomplish his purposes in writing this gospel account. He wants us to see that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He wants us to see that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful king of Israel. This morning in our text, Matthew is going to reveal two key truths as he introduces his readers to Jesus. First, his divine conception, and second, his divine purpose. So first, his divine conception. Verse 18 begins by transitioning from the genealogy of Jesus there we saw in verses 1 through 17. That highlighted his human ancestry, his human nature, and recounted the story now in these verses of his miraculous virgin conception and birth. And that highlights his divine nature. In this recounting of the events of Jesus' birth, Matthew is seeking to lay the foundation for us to help us understand who Jesus is, both his human and divine natures and what he's come to do. So as he tells this story, we first see a disheartening dilemma, a disheartening dilemma. Let's consider what it means that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now, while in some ways it is related to our practice of engagement, it is much different in other ways. In our day, if an engagement is to be broken, the woman would likely give back the ring and tell her fiance that she no longer wishes to marry him. But in the first century, betrothal was much more binding. This was a premarital contract. It had been entered into before witnesses and could only be broken by a formal process. Notice in the text, they're already calling Mary and Joseph husband and wife. They would be viewed legally as married. A physical relationship and cohabitation, though, were not permitted until after the marriage ceremony that was to come. And so we begin to see the rising conflict in this narrative, in this story, as Joseph wrestles with his circumstances. Now, what's difficult for us is we know the story. But enter into Joseph's dilemma for a moment. Consider how confusing, how frustrating, 
Maybe a temptation to anger. Certainly there's anxiety here. Mary is found to be with child. That means it's becoming obvious. People can tell she's pregnant. Now her pregnancy's been made known to Joseph, and he knows this is not my child. What is the only conclusion he can come to? Verse 19 says, And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This was the lawful, the right thing to do. There's, there's no condemnation for Joseph's actions in this. In fact, it's just the opposite. In verse 19, we're told two things about his character. First, we're told that he understands the law of God and he wants to obey it. He's faithfully kept his betrothal vows and has abstained from sexual activity. Therefore, he had every right to divorce her according to God's law since she was apparently guilty of adultery. Now, this doesn't mean in any way that God uh, uh, would like people to be divorced, that there isn't a way forward after their sin in a marriage, but it's saying he's making a provision when an act like this has been accomplished or done. D.A. Carson notes, because he was a righteous man, Joseph therefore could not, in good conscience, marry or wed Mary, who is now thought to be unfaithful. This would have brought her shame onto him. He must have been struggling with feelings of betrayal, of great hurt. He knew her as a woman of strong character and integrity. He was looking forward to this marriage. He would have never imagined her capable of something so shameful. This would shame them both. It might ostracize her from her community, maybe even her family. According to Deuteronomy, the original way this was dealt with was by stoning. This wouldn't have been practiced still in the first century, but that's how severely a crime or sin this was seen as. How could she have done something so foolish, so seemingly selfish? He's so confused as to why this is happening to him. It would soon be assumed by his own actions that he has either illegitimately fathered this child or that she was promiscuous and had cheated on him. If he divorced her, then he could reclaim most of his honor. By doing so publicly, he could make it clear that this was not his transgression. He was distancing himself from her and her sin. But we see secondly that Joseph was a righteous man because of his compassion. He didn't want to subject her to public shame and ridicule. And the Old Testament law provided a second way, a more private way to secure this divorce. It would be done again in the presence of just two witnesses. He would give her a bill of divorce that was to be signed by all parties. And Joseph said, I will go that route in compassion. Joseph's choice shows his character as one who is both righteous and compassionate. And here we see the model of godly manhood, don't we? He was both concerned about obeying God's word, but he wanted to do so in kindness, with mercy. How easy is it for us as husbands and fathers and leaders to lean too far to one side 
or the other. Joseph's actions, though, reflect God's greater character to his commitment to both justice and mercy. But now, secondly, we see an angelic interruption. Joseph is following logical thought patterns, right? But God in his mercy intervenes. Notice verse 20, but as he considered these things, now another word is added, surprise, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Consider what's at stake in Joseph's decision now as he's considering these things, as he's wrestling with them. What's at stake here? The woman carrying the savior of the world is potentially about to begin her life as a mother, a single mother, without the support of her husband and most likely without the support of her family. How Joseph responds will, from a human perspective, change the course of human history. God intervenes. God encourages him with revelation, with a word. In a dream, God sends his messenger. The angel begins by calling him Joseph, the son of David. Notice how Matthew very carefully and intentionally includes this title again. These words maintain his concern to identify Jesus as the Jewish Messiah through the line of David. Joseph then is told not to fear taking Mary as his wife. This is God's will for you. This isn't unrighteous because the baby that she is carrying is from the Holy Spirit. Do you think that would have been hard for Joseph to understand? This had never happened in human history. And it it has never happened again. It will never happen again. He's not given any further explanation as to how that occurred. He's to move forward with his original plans to take Mary as his wife. The angel's final words to him are a command as to what the baby's name should be and why. He was to be called Jesus or in Hebrew, Joshua. And as we saw last week, it means Jehovah saves. In obeying this command to name the child and then to bring him into his home, Joseph is legally adopting Jesus as his own. He's not his biological son, but he will legally be his son and an heir to the throne of David. Notice how the passage very carefully says, Joseph, you call his name. Jesus. This was the father's responsibility in this case in order to maintain that line. Do you see God's kindness to Joseph through this interruption? What Joseph needs is the revelation of God's plan in this moment, and God provides it to him. He's pondering, considering deeply, wrestling in turmoil. And through God's intervention and redirection of Joseph, God sovereignly continues to ensure his plan of redemption. Do you see how this story of Joseph and Mary's obedience demonstrate a truth that we're learning in our study of 1 Peter? What we see about their lives is that following Jesus is costly. It's not easy. It often comes with suffering and difficulty, at times confusion and pain. But there's honor and glory to follow. For both Mary and Joseph, these events would follow them 
all their lives and even threaten them. In the very next chapter, they'll be threatened by Herod because of this Christ child. All through their lives, there would follow them the whisper, the shame that Jesus was an illegitimate child. They were living in the first century in a small, tight-knit community. You don't think there would be questions about this? And yet this passage honors Mary and Joseph for their faith and obedience for all time. We're to understand it will cost us something to follow Jesus. People will misunderstand our motives and our intentions and who we're really trying to serve. But it will be worth it in the end. We'll have to fight against our feelings. Think of the feelings, the frustrations. They had to be subjected, subordinated to the truth that the angel spoke to Joseph. We'll have to fight against our ambition, our plans, and submit them all to God's will for our lives. It will take courage to follow Jesus Christ. Perhaps you may have to give up a promotion, a better paying job, or risk your reputation or popularity by sharing the gospel with a friend, a neighbor, or coworker. You may have to risk public embarrassment. But notice how all of the risk and hardship that God brought into this young couple's life, God used for the good of all mankind. All mankind benefits from their faith and their obedience. He knows the end of your circumstances as well as the beginning. He knows what he's doing in your life, even when you can't see it. Trust and obey him. A pastor once gave a talk in which he proposed two questions in order to determine whether or not a person was following the real Jesus or if they'd changed him to be some kind of more easier to follow, easier to believe, easier to love Jesus. These questions demonstrate for us whether or not we truly believe that Jesus is Lord at his birth. Here are the two questions. We see this in Mary and Joseph's life. First, are you willing to do whatever he commands, however costly or embarrassing it is to you personally? Are you willing to do whatever he commands, no matter how strange or how difficult or how confusing, however costly or embarrassing it is to you personally? Second, are you willing to trust God no matter what circumstance he brings into your life, no matter how confusing it may be? And you see how Mary and Joseph answered those questions with their choices in the text? Are you willing to obey no matter how costly? Are you ready to trust no matter how difficult? If you're not willing to say yes to those two questions, then is Jesus really anything more to you than an advisor? Maybe a great religious teacher that you get some inspirational thoughts from? Is he really that much different than a dispenser of good advice like a Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz on television? Maybe that's all you see him as. If Jesus is who God reveals him to be here in this text, what does that require of you? If you would be his follower, you must be willing to trust him implicitly and obey him completely. That's our goal as believers. Third, we see a miraculous child. 
Now let's consider what Matthew is clearly intent on showing us in this text. This is the most unusual birth in all of his human history. It only happened once. It's unique. It's supernatural. I want you to show you that this is Matthew's burden in the text. So look back in the text. Matthew provides seven indicators that Jesus' birth is uniquely divine. So go back to verse 18. Notice that phrase, before they came together. We all know it takes two people to have a child. Matthew says, number one, they hadn't come together, yet there's a child. Second, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This baby was not the result of the physical union of a man and a woman. Third, in verse 19, Joseph reacts to this pregnancy, demonstrating that the baby was not a result of his actions. Fourth, in verse 20, the angel has to convince Joseph to overcome his fear of the consequences of going through this marriage. Fifth, Joseph is given the explanation of why Mary is pregnant for the first time. The angel says to him, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Sixth, in verse 23, we're told that these events literally fulfilled a prophecy made hundreds of years earlier, now regarding Mary, who is a virgin. And seventh, in Matthew 25, Matthew now goes out of his way to demonstrate there's absolutely no way Joseph is the biological father of this child because he abstained from a physical relationship with Mary, we're told, until she'd given birth to a son even though the angel never required that step. Now, if we were not told that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew would be doing nothing more than reporting a small town scandal about a young woman's pregnancy, right? Matthew wants us to know something huge just happened. Our God, through this record, is doing Much more for us than that. He's demonstrating his great care, his great wisdom, his sovereign orchestrating of the circumstance in providing us with the perfect God-man who alone is able to save. If someone asked you this question, why is the virgin birth so important for us to believe? How would you answer that question? Why is the virgin birth so important for believers? Theologian John Frame helpfully provides five reasons. The virgin birth is important because of, number one, the doctrine of Scripture. If Scripture errs here, then why should we trust its claims about other supernatural events such as the resurrection? Why would God say something supernatural happened and and we just say, no, it didn't? Number two, the deity of Christ. While we cannot dogmatically say that God could enter the world only through a virgin birth, Surely the incarnation is a supernatural event if it is anything. To eliminate the supernatural from this event is inevitably to compromise the divine dimension of it. It's to say this could have been accomplished some other way than God has revealed. Third, the humanity of Christ. Jesus was really born the same way every other human child is born. He really became one of us. Fourth, the sinlessness of Christ. If he were born of two human parents, it would have been difficult for us 
to conceive how he could have been exempted from the guilt of Adam's sin and become a new head to the human race. It would seem arbitrary, an arbitrary act of God that Jesus could be born without a sinful nature. Yet Jesus' sinlessness as the new head of the human race and as the atoning lamb of God is absolutely vital to our salvation. Sure, God could have done it another way. But we believe he chose this way to help us in his grace to help us understand what's happening in this God, man, how he could be the perfect substitute. Lastly, we see the nature of grace, the birth of Christ in which the initiative and power are all of God and of his strength alone is an apt picture of God's saving grace in general of which it is a part. It teaches us that salvation is by God's act, not human effort. The birth of Jesus is like our new birth, which is also by the Spirit. It is a new creation. So not only have we seen a divine conception, secondly, we see a divine purpose. Our God always keeps his word. The next verse says, all this took place. Think of what that phrase captures. All of these things happened, occurred. Do you see how God is working out every intricate detail to accomplish his plan of redemption? Do you see how God is concerned in you in these details? He's concerned for you and your salvation. And he's going to accomplish his will. The next phrase, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. God keeps his promises to his people. Can you see why it's valuable to know the God of the word through the regular study of this book? How can you grow in your faith that God is faithful to you if you don't know what he's promised to his people? Isn't it helpful to see and read here this prophecy made hundreds of years ago was exactly suited for this circumstance and God keeps his word even over time. Nothing is impossible with our God. Salvation is of God alone. Jesus, Jehovah saves, is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus knew that was his purpose. Remember later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will heal a paralytic man in Matthew chapter 9. In verse 2, we read, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think it evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus fulfills the promise of this name. Jehovah saves by rescuing his people from their sins through his death on the cross. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to save a people, not just provide a possibility of salvation. Romans 3 tells us that no man, not one, seeks for God. But Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. 
He will be your savior today and for all eternity if you will turn to him from your sin. You can know for sure this morning that you are one of his own children. Not because of your wise choice, not because of the size of your faith or your Godward sincerity, but because he has pursued and rescued you and you trust in him and his work alone. He will save his people from their sin. Second, our God has entered this world. Think of the beauty of this promise, this name. Emmanuel has come. Jesus is God with us. There's no greater blessing that we can conceive of or long for than that God's people would dwell in the presence of God himself. This is an impossibility with mankind. We saw all throughout the Old Testament history. As man, as sinners, we messed that up. God keeps trying to dwell with his people, with Adam in the garden. He wants to dwell with him. He walks and talks with him. But Adam sins and God cannot be with him. God wants to walk and talk with the patriarchs, but they sin and reject his promises and go their own way and try to fulfill his word in their strength. He provides the tabernacle for the people of Israel. He provides the temple, but in their sins, that has to be abandoned and the glory departs. And now God has come to tabernacle to dwell with us in the flesh. In Matthew's gospel, he highlights God's presence with his people three specific times. First here in the first chapter, again in chapter 18, where he promises to be in the midst of two or three gathered in his name in that context who are striving to preserve the purity of his church. And lastly, he tells his followers he will be with them to the end of the ages as they seek to make more disciples or followers of Christ. So consider the biblical weight of this theme from the beginning to the end. At the beginning in a garden, God created man to be with him in his presence. The word must be made flesh because of sin. At the end of time though, we see this theme again accomplished because of Christ. Revelation 21.3 says God will finally restore all things. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus is making all things new. And this name is the promise of all that is to come. This name is to be an incredible comfort to the people of God. Jesus, God in the flesh, has come to be with us and for us. Pastor and theologian Ligon Duncan has said, in nature we see God above us. We can see in creation that God is massive and powerful and the ruler of all creation. When our conscience is enlightened by the accusing law of God, we see that God is rightfully against us and against our sin. But in the incarnation, by God's grace, we see God with us and God for us. Perhaps you are facing a time of significant loneliness in your life. You can't understand why the Lord would let you struggle alone. Maybe this holiday season has 
highlighted that sense in you again, but you, if you're a believer, are never, ever alone. No matter what you're facing, no matter what other people don't see or don't understand about you, he tells every one of his children, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus here is proof of that. This passage comforts us by reminding us that he came in order to be near us. To assure us that we will dwell with him for all eternity. One day C.S. Lewis was sitting in his study in the English department when a friend who is an unbeliever wandered in. There were carolers below in the courtyard singing. And as the two began speaking, they could hear them singing a Christmas carol that contained the Christmas message of Jesus' virgin birth. His friend said to Lewis, isn't it good that we now know better than they did? Lewis responded by asking, what do you mean? Well, isn't it good that we now know more than they did? Again, Lewis said, I'm afraid you'll have to explain. The man said, well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? C.S. Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, don't you think they knew that? That is the whole point. Remember, the first people to question the virgin birth were not skeptics. We're not atheists. They were Mary and Joseph themselves. Mary questioned on biological grounds. How can this be since I am a virgin? Joseph questioned it on moral grounds as he intended to divorce Mary for apparent immorality. As one author notes, the Christian notion of a virginal conception was not more plausible in first century Judaism than it is in the modern Western world. They weren't some crazy people that didn't understand how babies came about. This was not invented by gospel writers in order to provide Jesus with this great origin story. He came from this imaginary place. Maybe like Zeus comes down and has relations with a human lady. And there a God-man is born. No. This is nothing like that. No writer would ever invent something so unusual and difficult to believe. There was no interaction between God and a woman in that way. These are just the facts that these messengers were given to record. What we're saying is we don't understand all of the mystery of the virgin birth. This miracle is something that God had never done before and would never do again. But that is the whole point. Jesus is unique. God in the flesh. So that we will know and believe. So that we will trust and adore the newborn king. For he is God with us. And he's eager to save sinners. This passage tells us that our gracious God has done everything necessary to save his people from their sin. Can you see the great wisdom and kindness of God toward sinners? Toward you. God chose to send his son for us through a virgin to demonstrate his grace to us in this God-man. He wants us to see his purpose in coming. He's come to do what no other man, no other religion can do. He's not only the Jewish Messiah. He's not only virgin born, the divine and human flesh, not only God with us. He is the savior of sinful men. The essence and power of the gospel is that God became man. And by being both fully God and fully man, he alone is able 
to reconcile sinful men to God. One noted theologian has said, the birth of Christ in which the initiative and power are all of God is an apt picture of God's saving grace. As we said before, this teaches us salvation is God's act, not our effort. In this, we should find great hope and comfort. The well-known carol we began our service with this morning states, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as a man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Let's close with prayer this morning. Gracious God, we rejoice in this message of the gospel that even as a helpless baby, even in recounting this story, you are telling us why you're here, why Christ came to save a sinful people who have no ability in and of themselves to get anywhere near to God who don't want to get near to God. As rebels and sinners, the only thing we bring to the relationship is rejection and our sin. And yet you draw near. You pursue sinners. You love people who do not love you. And so, Lord, now as your people, we love you because you first loved us. Help us to obey you. Help us to trust you. Help us to know that your plans are wise and good and trustworthy, even when we can't see the end from the beginning. Lord, help us to recognize your grace in working out every single tiny detail in bringing your son into this world for the salvation from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Pastor Jim referenced the first hymn that we sang, the first Christmas song that we sang, the last 